It's Tuesday, September 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. We have the business of entertainment. We have a really good version of the when to buy question, but we're going to start with the latest from the war on cash. MasterCard is getting into the buy now, pay later industry. MasterCard installments is the program that will be launching next quarter in the US, Australia, and the UK. We're not surprised, are we? I mean, <laughs> given given how much attention this nascent industry has gotten and all the different businesses plowing into it, wasn't it just going to be a matter of time before MasterCard jumped in? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, th- there was language in, in previous earnings calls that uh, suggested they were making some investments in this space. Uh, you, you know, Chris, Ricky Bobby's father once told him, if you ain't first, you're last. Uh, what I think we're seeing here in the buy now, pay later space is that's not necessarily the case, right? It, it, it doesn't really matter who was first to this space because now we're seeing just this influx of all sorts of of companies wanting to participate and i think that in mastercard's case this shows the power of of such a massive network and and how difficult it is to disrupt uh all they have to do is kind of see where the puck is going and then start making those investments and then they plug it into this massive network and boom you've got a whole new feature and that's ultimately what bnpl is right buy now pay later it's a feature um and i don't mean to take anything away from a business like a firm uh because i I do think a firm is a good business but it, it struck me in thinking about a firm uh, going back to, I think it was some, maybe it was last week's Motley Fool Money when we were talking with Emily about Stitch Fix, mm-hmm. and you you had noted, I, I thought it was a good way of, of looking at it. You know, there's there's a floor and there's a ceiling, right? It's not a business that's going to zero. I mean, a firm's a good business, but I think given where a firm is today, you know, maybe there is a ceiling if you're just going to be a buy now, pay later company. So for something like a firm, you want to see them branch out and do other things, whereas MasterCard has already branched out and done a bunch of other things. And this is is just going to be one more thing that they do. Um, I think it makes perfect sense. It's a very uh, little bet, as they like to say on their part, uh, because you remember Mastercard. This they don't lend, right? This is not something where they're actually putting up money. They're essentially just creating the tool, the technology for other. Uh, participants to be able to plug it into their system. So you get Barclays US, Consumer Bank, SoFi, Synchrony, Marketa. I mean, these are all companies that are going to be using this MasterCard technology uh, to incorporate buy now, pay later into their models. Uh, so so I, I think it makes perfect sense. It's not a surprise. I'm glad to see them doing it. Um, and hey, you know what? They didn't have to acquire Afterpay for $29 billion to do it, Chris. I want to go back to something you touched on early in your answer, which is the idea of first mover advantage. Yeah. And I'm not belittling first mover advantage, but I would use this instead as an opportunity to caution investors. If you are making up a list of reasons why you are buying a business, and somewhere on that list is, this company has first mover advantage, you should stop for just a minute and ask yourself, how sustainable is that advantage? Because there there are some times in history where first mover advantage is real and meaningful. Yeah. Uh, this seems like one of those industries where the shelf life of first mover advantage isn't that long. Yeah, I mean I think I think you really it just boils down to how replicable is 
the advantage, right? I mean, with something like this, I mean, BNPL is 100% replicable. I mean, it's just, you know, and so we, that, that's why we've seen so many companies uh, jump into the space because it's it's essentially easy enough for them to do. Um, the, the, more, the more difficult it gets, the more IP that is involved, right? I mean, it, oftentimes uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult to replicate, and that's where a first mover advantage can certainly play a greater role. But yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, first mover yeah, you love to see it. Um, it it's not always uh, something that means you've immediately got a great investment uh, on your hands there. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's so it's so interesting to look at how this buy now pay later space is evolving, and and to see how different participants can win in different ways. Because if we just assume for a second that Mastercard never even did this, if we just say that Mastercard says, you know what, we don't even want to bother with it, we don't think it's that big of a deal, we'll pass. Well, <clears throat> if you look at a firm's website and and you look at the ways that you can pay for your installments. And this is a straight quote from from a firm's website. You can pay with your debit card or checking account for all the firm purchases uh, on a a firm.com or in the app. You can also mail us a check for some purchases. You can also pay by credit card for the down payment and installments. Well, you know what? MasterCard does credit cards and debit cards. And that's part of the idea behind this is they saw a lot of data that was telling them that people were using their MasterCards already to either make down payments or the installment payments. So they were already a beneficiary of this industry to an extent. This expands that opportunity for them for sure, uh, but but it just goes to show that even though they weren't really participating, they were. And they were benefiting from all of that data from this massive network. It helps them just make very informed and educated decisions, uh, which is, is is one of the reasons why I, I, I remain a MasterCard shareholder and, and extremely bullish on, on the stock for the long term. Spotify has launched its first global brand campaign in an effort to win over advertisers. Part of the effort is changing the name of its advertising business from Spotify Advertising to Spotify for Brands. And I know, Jason, when company look, marketing spend is a lever that companies can control. And we've seen examples over the years of companies sort of pulling back on their marketing spend uh, to save money, make their uh, quarterly report look a little bit more profitable. I think if you're a Spotify shareholder, you got to feel good about this effort. You have to like this effort, because this is a stock that's basically been flat for the past 12 months, when the S&P 500 is up about 25 or 30%. So, this is, to me, Spotify looking at their business and saying, we can and should be doing a better job here. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree totally. I mean, I think um, I think many probably see Spotify as a music streaming service first and foremost, and, and I know that they're ultimately trying to present themselves as as an audio company, right? It's not just music. I mean, it's podcasts as well. Uh, going going kind of back to that to that size of the network uh, thing that we were talking about with Mastercard Spotify is getting to a point where their network is so big they're they're going to be able to to try a lot of new things and really push uh, new features out to a lot of of uh, folks they have a meaningful audience and and so this makes perfect sense i think what we're seeing ultimately is the the evolution of Spotify to me this is a straight up entertainment company so i think it i think it transcends 
just music and podcasts. I mean, they're incorporating more video into into the app. I mean, there are going to be a lot of different things they can do, a lot of potential avenues they can pursue with this user base. And the user base itself is just tremendous. If you look at the way these numbers break down, so total users now at 365 million, that's versus 299 million a year ago. Now, if you break that down, premium subscribers uh, make up about 165 million, right? And that grew from 138 million just a year ago. But ad supported monthly active users now stand at 210 million. So they have more ad supported users than they do premium subscribers. The flip side of that is that. The premium subscribers account for 88% of the total revenue for the company, for the business, right? So they are very much still reliant on that subscriber base. But we're seeing uh, a trend in their advertising business gaining some traction. Advertising still makes up a very small percentage of the overall revenue, but it's now 12%. That was versus 7% a year ago. So they're seeing that they're gaining some traction in this ad space. And a lot of that has been with these big brands that can afford to jump on a platform that can be a little bit more difficult to measure at times, right? If you have a Twitter or a Facebook or something like that, where you're measuring clicks, Google, I mean, those clicks are a bit more uh, tangible, so to speak, right? It's a bit more obvious in the measurement there versus something like uh, listening. And you can't quite can't quite fully understand the return you might be getting on the investment. So I think that's one of the hurdles they're going to have to clear uh, is 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 coming up with the tools for those those marketers to really be able to measure. But it absolutely makes sense to pursue uh, this big market opportunity because when you look at the overall amount of money that is is flowing into to podcasts, for example, I mean U.S. ad revenue from podcasts. Grew to $842 million in 2020. It's set to top $1 billion this year and is forecast to reach $2 billion by 2023. That's that's a lot of opportunity. They're not just for Spotify, but for all of those podcasters out there on Spotify, right? It just it's it's an opportunity for you to monetize your show or your content uh, in a meaningful way if you're producing good stuff. You got to expand that audience uh, to do it, and it sounds like that's what they're uh, that's what gonna that's what they're gonna try to tackle. Our Twitter handle, speaking of Twitter, is market, at MarketFoolery. Um, you can tweet at us, as Colin did when he asked, how do you know when to quit buying? <laughs> I bought App Harvest at $14 a share. I'm in for the long game, and I bought more when it dropped to $8. My desired position size is full. I'm currently down over 40%, but I want more at a lower price. How do you decide to quit, monitor, and when to buy again? Thank you for that, Colin. And he's asking about App Harvest. He could be asking about any stock. We've gotten the, yeah. a, a version of this question about so many different companies over the year, over the years, where it's and and I think you and I both identify with this situation. We've both been in this position before, where you <clears throat> bought a stock, it dropped, and then it's like, well, now I can now I can lower my cost. But <laughs> I like I nothing has changed with the business. I still. All of the reasons that I bought this business are still there for me. I'm in it for the long haul. Why wouldn't I buy at a lower price? Although, I, I will just say before I hand it over to you, I have contemplated sort of that third bite at the apple. I've never done that before. I, to me, it's just like, no, I bought it at a lower price. I'm only going to do that once. But that's just me. Well, and, and I mean, you. so you exercise some willpower is what you're saying. 
Well, in terms of like buying it a third time, yeah, I have. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I don't, I don't want to simplify the answer because I think it's a really good question, Colin. And thankfully. Uh, for you, at least, I, I can speak to this one with, with just exact, direct experience because I, I essentially did the same thing. I mean, I, I bought App Harvest around fourteen dollars, and, and after the earnings release and this this sort of restructuring or evolution of the business, and the stock took took a big hit. I added a little bit more to fill out my position, so I'm right there with you. I can feel your pain right now uh, in in that that you're down forty uh, percent. Uh, but I mean, back to the back to the to the question, knowing when to quit. I think, I mean, it does require willpower. I mean, you have to be able to focus on your process and not the outcome. It's very easy as investors to get ahead of ourselves, to see that finish line and taste almost the riches from these great ideas, right? But but you do have to stay focused on the process and understand that it takes time. So something like App Harvest, for example, because that's what you that's what you targeted in the question there. App Harvest is is I, I would put there I, I would put that up there with one of the riskier ideas today. Um, it, just in that it is a brand new company to the public markets. It is literally just now starting to to generate revenue. Uh, it is it is trying to disrupt an industry that is sorely in need of disruption, utilizing technology to improve our food supply chain. So you have to be able to look at something like App Harvest as. And and I've told this to our members before. I've said you've got to just commit to being able to own this stock for five years, and and ignoring those twenty percent drops, being down forty percent. You have to be able to to go ahead and just and just understand that's going to happen. Um, I, I think that diversification helps. I think that when you know that you have other businesses in your portfolio that you can pay attention to and follow, and and, and you're seeing some some winners maybe that are helping to offset some of those losers, I think it, it that can help distract you. It can help take your mind elsewhere. Um, but but that it's also really I think just about setting up expectations from the get go, setting the appropriate expectations up front when you invest in a given company, understanding what type of a business it is, where it falls on the risk spectrum. How much you're willing to invest in it, and then being able to say, you know what, that's where I draw the line. No one to say when, right? It, it's it's not easy. I'm not saying it is. I think it gets easier the more that you do it. Uh, it's always tempting to want to add uh, on on the dip, but you also have to recognize. I mean, this is a business that falls on the higher end of the, of that risk spectrum, so you need to account for that and, and position size accordingly. And you don't want this to be. The way you're investing all the time, like if you're like this, yeah. this to me is one of those situations for investors that you want to be rare. If you're if you're an investor, you don't want to be habitually in this situation. Yeah, and I mean, you look at something like App Harvest, and you you go into this. When I say setting those appropriate expectations, I mean you invest in a business like this, expecting that in five years' time, it's going to look like a much different company. Um, it, it's just going to be different than what we see today, and, and, and I mean that in a good way. And we saw signs of that from from that most recent earnings report, where where they are they're they're reorganizing the business in such a way to to I think open up more windows of opportunity. Uh, but but yeah, I mean you don't. You just don't want to put yourself in a position where you feel like you have to keep averaging down 
just to get back to even, right? I know some people love to do that, and, and then that's really that's really not the point. It it does it does get easier the more you do it, but I, I really do believe that, that diversification helps that a lot. I think that when you have more companies in your portfolio and you can focus on other winners, uh, that that can help take your attention off of some of those other uh, companies that may not be doing so well in the near term, right? And, and understanding that, that this is this is truly going to be. A minimum five-year uh, story, hopefully much longer. But but uh, understanding that from the get-go, and, and then yeah, you just gotta have a little bit of willpower to be able to tell yourself not to click that buy button again. Keep the tweets coming. Keep the emails coming to marketfoolery at fool.com. Before we wrap up, programming note, but but not our program uh, tonight at seven o'clock on ESPN. There's going to be a one-hour E60 special documentary on the 20-year anniversary of pardon the interruption. So, uh, I know I'm going to be sitting in front of my television watching that at 7 <laughs> o'clock. I want to give a quick shout out to Eric Ridehome, Matt Kelleher, the whole crew at PTI. 20 years, over 5,000 episodes. Yeah, it's we, I, I mean, earlier this year, uh, we had our 2,000th on this show. Industry Focus just had its 2,000. We know what it takes to do 2,000 episodes. 5,000 plus. Just incredible. It is. It really is. And and we've 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 been able to benefit from a lot of Eric's guidance along the way too. I mean, what a what a friendly what a friendly guy and what a what a tremendous uh, guy to have in your corner. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about in the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's gonna do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.